and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Come so. back with me to verse 8 and the phrase, there were shepherds living out in the fields. The word that is used here, adra leo, is only used in this place in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else. It's a very interesting word. It's a present active participle, which indicates that this was their habitual practice. In other words, they always lived in the fields. They weren't just in the fields for a little while. They weren't in the fields because this was a special occasion. That was their home. These shepherds were the shepherds that raised the lambs that were sacrificed in the temple. But again, why was their permanent residence in the field? Even to this day, if you go to Israel and the guides will lead you to the area outside of Bethlehem and it's called the shepherd's fields. Why were they there? Why was that their permanent residence? I wanna give you a quick lesson through scripture that will tie together things possibly you've never seen before. Let me start by going back to Genesis chapter 35. The reason I refer you to this particular passage is that after Rachel died and Jacob in his grief buried her, he traveled a little bit further and he pitched his tent at a very interesting place. And in Genesis 35 verses 19 through 21, we find that he pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. The Tower of Eder. Why is that important? Because Eder means the flock. And it's actually picked up later in a prophecy in Micah chapter 4 and verse 8, which says, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, or to you he shall come. And this, of course, will connect with our passage in Luke, because as we read later on, Jewish tradition made this tower the destined birthplace. This is long before Christ came into the world. The Jewish rabbis were teaching where this tower was set up. Who set it up? We don't know. But going all the way back now to the time of Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ, a tower was erected, and the Jewish rabbi said this tower was erected on the site where the Messiah would ultimately come. Very, very interesting. Jerome in the fourth century saw in this tower the foreshadowing of the announcement of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ to the shepherds, the ones that kept living in the fields. Very interesting. Today it answers to a place called Kerbet Sir El Ghanim, which is called the Ruin of the Sheepfold. It's very interesting that archaeologists have gone to this place and they have found uh, all kinds of Christian uh, arches, remains, uh, different things showing that very, very early on this was a place of worship, this Tower of Adair. 
If you'll open your Bible with me to 1 Chronicles, we'll follow this a little bit further because we meet a very interesting individual in 1 Chronicles. Someone wrote a book about him in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. In verse 9 we read, Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother called him Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Kind of a rough name to give to a kid because it basically means he causes pain. Verse 10, Jabez called on the God of Israel. Now this is a noble, honorable man according to Scripture. And he prays, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. I don't want to live up to my name. We have to understand that in Hebrew thought, the name your parents gave you was actually the name God already had planned for you before you were born, and it described your character. We see that playing out a lot in Scripture in the names that are given to people. Jabez did not want to live up to his name. He did not want to be a source of pain. And then it says, and so God granted him what he requested. He requested God's blessing for enlarged territory. The book that I referred to, uh, which has got some good stuff in it, but it's got some bad stuff too. Jabez was not praying for territory. When he prayed that God would enlarge his territory or enlarge his holdings, he was an honorable man, he was a noble man, he was thinking in spiritual terms. Which would you rather have, a big ranch or eternal impact? What would you rather have? Would you rather have holdings in this world or would you rather have impact in history and reward in eternity? Jabez was praying for something much, much bigger than most people think of. How do we know that God answered this prayer and why in the world would this relate to the shepherds in the field? Well, if you just slide over to 1 Chronicles chapter 2, and 1 Chronicles chapter 2 is very interesting because we meet a lot of interesting people. In verse 11, we meet Boaz, and you know Boaz married Ruth, and you know that they were in the lineage of the Messiah. And then, of course, we come to 1 Chronicles 2 and verse 54. The sons of Salma were Bethlehem. That's where the name of the village came from. The Netophathites, uh, Atroth, Beth, Joab, half of the uh, Manahathites and the Zorites, and this is the important part, forget all the ites, Verse 55, the families of the scribes who dwelt at a village named for the guy we just looked at, Jabez. A village named Jabez, where the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, the Succothites, who were of the Kenite, you know the Kenites were not Jews, they came from Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. I know you think that we've already lost the trail, but we're actually just closing in on it. The Tower of Eder, which stood just outside the village that later is called Bethlehem, was the site later of a village. Jabez's prayer began by a village being named for him near the Tower of Adair. The, the village's name was Jabez, and who were there? Kenites, not Jews, but Kenites who later actually married into the Levitical uh, priesthood and the Levitical tribe, and what were they? Notice the important words here, scribes who dwelt at Jabez. What was the job of the scribe? The job of the scribe was to copy the scriptures, to study the scriptures, and to teach the scriptures. The beginning of the answer to Jabez's prayer was a group of people, not even Jews, but proselytes who came in because of faith, and they became the leading Bible scholars of their time. Now, one other thing I want to point out to you is that they were of a particular type of people. It tells us at the end of the verse that they were of the house of Rechab. 
The word rakab actually means rider or chariot rider. And we're going to meet one of their notable people as we move on. Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 35, where we'll begin to see a little bit more connection with what's going on here. In Jeremiah 35, and I'll allow you to read the chapter on your own, but there was a group of people that Jeremiah went to, and Jeremiah wanted to use these people as an example to the children of Israel of what faithfulness looked like. So if you'll just pick up with me, Jeremiah is told in verse 2, go to the house of the who? Rechabites. Who were the Rechabites? Well, there was a village where they were scribes, and now we're talking about 1,500 years later, the prophet Jeremiah is told to go to these people for a certain reason, bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. So Jeremiah said, I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of who and who and who will go on and on and on, his brothers and all his sons, the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah. They really get into the genealogies here. A man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes above the chamber, and so on and so forth. I set, verse 5, before the sons of the house of the Rechabites, bowls full of wine and cups, and I said, drink wine. Jeremiah is doing what God commanded him to do. Say, all right, pour me a drink. Verse 6, but they said, we will drink no wine for Jonadab, the son of Rechab. Once again, keep this linked back there to First Chronicles. Our father commanded us saying, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. That was not the only requirement he placed on them, however. Verse 7 says, you shall not build a house or sow seed or plant a vineyard nor have any of these. All your days you shall dwell in tents that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. The Rechabites through all their generations became shepherds and lived in tents. And as we come down to Jeremiah's commendation of these people, he says in verse 16, Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them. But this people, meaning Israel, God says, has not obeyed me. They've obeyed their earthly father. You guys haven't even obeyed your heavenly father. That's what he's saying. Verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. I have called to them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Can you connect this unique group of people who took a vow that they would always remain nomads and shepherds who were linked to the village that once stood slightly outside of Bethlehem, all the way down to the shepherds that ultimately stood before the Lord according to this promise. He will not lack a man to stand before me. By the way, the phrase stand before me has a priestly connotation. But my conviction is that these shepherds were living in the same place they had always lived, lived in the same way they had always lived, were doing the same thing they had always done, continued to remain students of God's word, obviously, and they were the first ones that were invited to meet the Savior as he entered the world. That's pretty amazing, but it's not as amazing as what happened and what they witnessed. You know, Paul captures 
the first Christmas in a way that the simple story can't. We love the story in its simplicity, in its oriental beauty, and it's so amazingly beautiful, but it doesn't come close to capturing what that little child represented. When Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to cling to or a thing to grasp, but he made himself of no reputation and came in the form of a man and being found in existence as a man, he humbled himself even further unto death, even the death of the cross. That all began right here. That was that huge step that our Savior took from his throne in heaven down into this world full of sin, sorrow, and suffering for what? To live a life of rejection, a life misunderstood, a life of slander and maligning, and ultimately to go to the cross for you and I to pay the penalty for our sins. And not just for ours, but as John tells us, for the sins of the entire world. We should stand as we do today, preparing to celebrate Christmas with the, I don't even have words to describe it, awe, reverence, amazement, humility. Our soul should be struck with the beauty, but also the grandeur and the greatness of everything that our Savior has done for us.